Hello and welcome to the Union Podcast. This is episode 75 and my name is Brian Pugh and I am co-founder of the Union Movement. If this is the first time you've checked out the Union Podcast, we exist to help people find wholeness in sexuality, identity, and relationships with a gospel-centered and holistic approach. So we we just want to welcome you here and we hope that today's conversation is just really life-giving and is equipping for you uh, to discover God's design for the beauty of, of these areas and his plan of redemption when those areas are compromised. If the, if you are a return listener, if I can get my words out right, if you're a return listener, we're so glad that you're here and we appreciate your support. And we, we'd love it if you comment, subscribe, and just share this podcast uh, wherever uh, wherever you can. We want to get this message out in front of more and more people and help more and more people find that wholeness. We are so pumped to have Jessica Harris on the podcast today. And uh, Bonnie actually sat down with her and discussed her new book, Quenched, Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. Usually the conversation around pornography and a lot of resources within the Christian culture today are geared towards men who might be uh, struggling or or fighting the fight of lust. And uh, unfortunately, it leaves a lot of women uh, kind of scratching their heads or feeling just kind of isolated and alone in this fight. Because as a recent uh, Barna study would show, we have 20% of, of women who are polled uh, Christian women who were polled saying that they view uh, porn regularly. And uh, so there, this leaves women suffering silently and often feeling alone with nowhere to turn. And so Jessica in her book goes into some really key areas of, of why, why this is happening in women's life, but also how people can walk into freedom, how women can walk into freedom and, uh, and break free of shame. And uh, so we are so excited to have her on today. And I know that you're going to benefit from this conversation and we pray that it blesses you. All right. So I'm here today with Jessica Harris. We're so glad that you're able to make time to be on our podcast to talk about not only your recently released book called Quenched, uh, but also just the message that God has entrusted to you to spread. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. All right. So, um, Jessica, we just meeting for the first time today. Can you just share with me, but share also with our listeners a little bit about yourself and, you know, your family and what you're up to, but then also, um, this message that obviously is burning on your heart. Yeah. So um, my name is Jessica Harris and I created the website beggarsdaughter.com back in 2009 to address the issue of Christian women struggling with pornography. Um, I am a wife and a mom. My husband is a an army chaplain and um, we have two little girls and a little boy on the way. So I have written books before, but this is the the first traditionally published book that I've released. So Quenched is a look at John 4 and God's heart of grace for women who are struggling with with pornography and with sexual shame. Powerful. Okay. There's a couple of questions I feel like I want to ask. Um, One, can you tell me Beggar's Daughter? That is a very unique name. Can you tell me uh, where that came from? Absolutely. So when I started my website um, and had to pick a name for it, obviously, um, it's like picking a name for a kid. (laughs) I was like, I want to pick something that is beautiful and communicates the struggle that women are going through. Like I didn't want it to be like purity after pornography. You know, I I wanted it to be something that had a message 
itself and communicated that message of grace. And so as I was in the process of trying to figure out a name, one of the women I used to mentor in college, um, she wrote a poem about a entitled The Beggar's Daughter. Mm. And it was about a girl in London who longed to live in the castle and people around her said, like, you need to stop dreaming. You were born a beggar. You will always be a beggar and you will die a beggar. And it just, it was like, that is, if that, if anything (laughs) captures how women can feel in this struggle, that can be it. Like I, I am searching and desperate. I was, I was born this way. I'm going to die this way. Like there's no hope for me, but yet in this, in this poem, she's continuing to dream about what it would be like to be free from this and to be a a daughter of the King and to live in the castle. And it's like, if this is not what, (laughs) what Christian women are going through. And so that's, I asked her, I said, can I please use this as the name for my blog? And she's like, absolutely. And so that's where that name came from. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's powerful. Okay. So I mean, I think you're right. That poem seems to encapsulate the hopelessness that women can feel. Um, from what I've even been reading in your book, um, you yourself were facing that and but facing the shame of feeling like as a woman, you were the kind of like, this is a man's issue. Why do I have, why am I dealing with a man's issue? You know, cause there's so many resources and rightly so there should be resources for men. Um, but there's not as many voices on the, when it, this comes to, it comes to the matter of women struggling with porn. Could you tell me, um, maybe statistically what you know to be true about Christian women and porn, but then also like, um, I'm sure as you've talked with women, women are reaching out to you probably from your website and stuff. Could you just share like, just like the reality of what, what women are facing? Yeah. So I think statistically the numbers are, it depends on who you ask. So it depends on how they did their study, (laughs) but somewhere around ballpark of 30%, but I don't like those statistics. And this is why, um, because they're not an accurate reflection of the problem Mm -hmm. because they, they include too many women. And I know that sounds really funny, but like in churches, you have multi-generations of women, you know, you have your teenagers and your millennials, Mm -hmm. like you, you go through. So my grandma's generation, my grandma's in her eighties, they are not going to have this problem in droves. They didn't even have the technology for it. Back when she was young and my age, she was the homemaker. You know, she's at home with the kids. My grandfather's the one who had the money. Like the men had the money. The men had the ability. They had the access to this material back in the 50s when Mm -hmm. Playboy was started. And so you don't have that generation of women really having this issue. Even my mom's generation doesn't really have this issue. And so when you include these, when you do these studies and you include all of the women, it almost waters down how big the problem is because you're including my grandma and my mom in the statistics and thinking it's like an average across the board, like one in three, and it's not. <laughs> um, it's not like one in three of my grandma's generation, one in three of my mom's generation, one in right, three of mine, right. and one in three of the teenagers. It's an exponential curve. I used to teach math. So it's an exponential curve where it's like almost nobody in my grandma's mm-hmm. generation, not saying that nobody did. I have 70 year old women who reach out to me, 
you know, saying this has been a problem for me for 40 years, but yeah, um, it's less than it's a little bit more in my mom's. It's a, a significant amount more when you deal with millennials. And then when you get into Gen Z, you just skyrocket to the wow. point that I have had um, churches reach out to me and say, we did an anonymous survey of our ninth and 10th grade girls. And this was probably 10 years ago, even that I had this conversation, but they said, we did a survey of um, our ninth and 10th grade girls anonymous and hundred percent of them struggle with pornography, like ninth and 10th grade girls in the church wow. admitting that they struggle with this. I did a presentation at a church 10 years ago and it was a multi-generational presentation for women. Um, and so there were 12 year olds there and grandma's there. Everybody was there. I shared my story and a 12 year old girl went up to her friend's mom and said, I don't understand why this girl's here telling her story. Every girl watches porn. And so when we go 30%, people go, it's not that big of a deal, but it's not 30%. Like It's, the, it's the, a lot strong. Uh, it's, it's a, a lot big bigger, issue. right? Yeah. It's a lot bigger than 30%. And I, right. I just like, once that older, those older generations die off, you know, like not to be morbid, but once they die off, yeah, like, right then all of a sudden it's going to look like our stats just jumped up and people are going to It'll you know, be blame 60% culture and, and then right. it will be and, 90%. Yeah. But it's always been that for those generations. It's just now we're losing the people who are watering down our statistics a bit. That, so, that makes sense. So yeah. if it was based on demographically to the generation, then it would give us a more accurate view. Right. And okay. the tricky thing is too, the studies that um, do base it on demographics, you're, they're retrospective demographics. So like there was a study released in 2016, but that study was done. Like the actual polling was done back in 2014. And there's right. like a certain age limit where you can't ask people. So you can't ask nine-year-olds if they've seen pornography, you know, so mm-hmm. like you just have to ask the 18 year olds. So when did you see it? And then you go backwards from there. So we're still not, we don't have an accurate read on how big this problem is. I don't think statistically. Powerful. I mean, my husband, he talks openly that he was exposed to porn, you know, back when he was five years old, but this was before the internet was in his pocket, (laughs) you know? And so he just, we just emphasize with the accessibility to pornographic imaging, not, and it's not even just like hardcore stuff, but even just like we're living in a pornographic culture that is pressuring us to think differently about our, about our bodies, about our sexuality, and it's impacting our relationships in a negative way. Um, can you share from your own testimony? I know, Mm -hmm. you know, if people want to read the more of it, I know you have it in your book and, and previous books as well, but just share for those who have maybe haven't heard it before, um, a bit of your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I, I grew up in a Christian home. I think that's always important to say, cause everyone always just assumes that it was like a pagan home and like, and then that's how I got exposed to this stuff. But no, I grew up in a, a Christian home and was exposed to pornography by accident when I was researching for school. I was 13, which is old. I want people to know (laughs) the average age is between like nine and 11 for exposure. Um, So I was exposed at 13 back in the age of dial up internet and floppy disks. I'm an older millennial. And uh, yeah, I don't think we understood back then how dangerous the internet could be in that regard. I think because it was relatively new Mm -hmm. um, to have for people to have access to it in their homes. So there wasn't... There weren't conversations really about 
protecting yourself online or not finding this stuff. At the same time, I was in, in like in church, but in the middle of the the purity culture movement, kind of where it was like purity rings and purity balls and purity pledges and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the messages I got kind of from my family and from church were like, we don't talk about sex. Like you just don't do it. Just don't do it. Just wait, just don't do it. And so when I found pornography, it was like, Oh, this is, this is what people are talking about. Got it. You know? Yeah. (laughs) For me, it was like this, it didn't seem wrong because it didn't, it wasn't actually sex. You know, it was, I'm not sleeping with somebody. I'm not going to get pregnant. I'm not going to get an STD. Like this is safe. And in my 13 year old brain, that made complete sense to me. It was like, this doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like it was a safe place for me to explore and for me to express. I'm going to chat rooms and like pretend with other people um, because it just, it seemed safe. So I did that for years. By the time I was a senior in high school, um, 17 years old, and it had taken over my life. Uh, it was something that I would call my mom because dial up, right? So I'd call my mom when I got home from school and I would say like, Hey, I'm going to be um, researching for school all afternoon. Let me know what, 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 what time do you think you're coming home? And she would tell me. And so I would like watch pornography all afternoon and she wouldn't be worried about not being able to reach me because I told her already that I'd be researching for school, but I was not. And I would wait until she was about about the time that she said she was going to come home and I would delete my history and type in some websites that looked educational. So that if she checked the history or checked the search bar, it looked like I had been researching for school. I'd wait for her to go to bed and I would sit up at night watching the adult channels on our TV. We didn't get them. But back then, if even if you didn't get it, you could still, things would still slip through kind of on those channels. And so I would sit up for hours just watching those channels, just waiting for scenes to slip through. Um, and eventually it just started to affect everything. It started to affect my grades, it started to affect my sleep. Um, and I thought, okay, this might be a little out of control. So let me cut back. Because um, again, I still think it's fine and it's safe and it's okay but I didn't like that it was taking over my life. So I'm like, I'm going to try to control this. And I couldn't, I tried and tried. I would set timers. I would try to tell like, just take a day off. You don't need it today. I would try to put password protection on the computer, but like, if you know the password, it doesn't really, doesn't really help. Yeah. I um, just thought maybe if I just put an extra step right, in there, just then an extra I'll step, it'll help. Exactly. And none of the extra steps helped. Um, I eventually resorted to self-harm to try to get myself to stop. And that that didn't help. So I started looking for help online and everything was for men. And that was the first time that I thought, is this not normal for women to look at this? Because like that thought had never crossed my mind until I went to look for help and there was nothing out there for women. Everything was for men. And I thought am I the only woman in the world who's done this? Which adds, starts shame. introducing shame into yeah. this because now it's like, oh goodness, what's wrong with me? And what have I done? And now who do I tell? Like right. nobody's out there. So I'm not going to find help in my family. I'm not going to find help in my church. My church has a lot of older pastors and pastor's wives. And I was just like, I'm going to like, whoever I tell is going to drop from a heart attack. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't tell anybody there. It didn't feel safe. And I remember 
um, sharing during like a youth group exercise. Once we did like who we were before Christ and who we were after Christ. And so I shared that I used to be addicted to pornography. I used to struggle with pornography, even though I was still actively struggling with it, but it was my way to see if it was safe. I said, I, you know, I used to struggle with pornography and the youth pastor's response was kind of like, whew, well, dodge that bullet. Glad that's over. And just, just moved on. Like didn't, didn't address it at all. It never came up again. And that was, it was like, okay. And then they Whoa, just yeah. kept going. So it was never a conversation. And I went off to college thinking if I get caught in college, they'll be able to help me because they've seen like this Bible before. college. Yeah. Bible I was like, college. they'll, they'll, it's a, it was a Christian liberal arts school. And I was like, they'll, they'll have seen this before. Like surely I can understand if my little town church hasn't seen this, but a Bible or a Christian college is going to have seen this before. And I did get caught and they pulled me into the Dean's office with a print off of my internet reports, like my internet search history. And said, like, this is disgusting. This is gross. Whoever this is really needs help. And that being said, we know this wasn't you because women just don't have this problem. And so that was a devastating blow of shame for me because I had hoped to find help. Mm -hmm. And now you're telling me that there's something intrinsically wrong with me that, that I absolutely should not as a woman have this issue. And so that was hard for me because it's like, okay, what, what is wrong with me then? <laughs> what, what is wrong with me? And I just felt like, all right, God, you can't, thanks for the vote of confidence. And thanks for saying that you love everybody and that you would love me, but you can't love me. Like I am not able to be loved, which is one of the lies of shame, right? Like I yeah. am not able to be loved. And so I was 17 years old, grew up in a Christian home, grew up in the church, attending a Christian college when I said, I just have to be a porn star. Like that's the only thing that made sense in my mind. I was going to school to be a doctor. Like, mm. <laughs> and, and I just said, I can't, I can't keep living life like this. And if there's no hope and no chance of freedom, then I give up. I'm done. Wow. And, um, sent, started an online relationship with a man, sent him, um, sent him photos, sent him nude photos back before it was the cool thing to do. Yeah. And, um, that was like, this is it. This is what I'm destined for. Kind of, this is the only way I can find any kind of worth and value. Um, so I bought into that lie, left the school. Thankfully, it's not that easy to get into the adult industry. At least it wasn't back then. It's not like you could like hit the apply here button. <laughs> and so I struggled for a while and God really worked mightily in my life. And I, I share my whole story, like more in depth, um, in my book, beggar's daughter, but, um, he just really got a hold of my life. And I actually ended up at Bible college the next fall. Mm. And it was there that the Dean staff pulled all the women aside and they shared about strongholds and how strongholds are an area in your life where the devil still has a foothold, where the enemy still has a fortress. And you might have victory in all these other places in your life, but you've got this one thing, this one area where you've kind of gone, ah, it's just a little castle, no big deal. Like, and you just left it there. <laughs> and the the devil's still launching attacks from there. He's still causing issues because you you aren't addressing it. And in that context, they said, we know some of you struggle with pornography and we want to help you. Wow. And that's when I was able to share that this is part of my story and begin to find freedom. Powerful. Thank you, God, for 
staff who say, we know that this is a struggle and there is hope, you know, and I feel like even for people listening to this conversation right now, man, that's the message that we hope you hear. You're not alone. There is hope. Uh, Yeah. The shame doesn't have to have a chokehold on you. You know, speaking, actually speaking of shame, you mentioned that a couple of times there, just the, the level, the waves of shame that started to come when you felt alone in it, uh, you felt like you were unlovable. Could you talk a little bit more about, um, yeah, just the shame you felt and then also kind of the patterns of shame that you see in women who are dealing with, I would say pornography, but also just even sexual shame in general. What do you, Mm -hmm. what do you see? So I think, um, in my, in my life, like my personal story, the, the biggest lie of shame that I dealt with was that I was unlovable by God. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, um, and I think that is the, the biggest, that, that is shame's greatest work. I think if, if shame can tell you that God wants nothing to do with you and can convince you of that. And can convince you to walk away from your relationship with him because you think that he wants nothing to do with you. Like you would love to be loved by God, but God does not want to love you back. If shame can convince you of that and can convince you to kind of throw up your hands and say, well, there's no way God could love me. Then it has cut you off from your source of freedom. Like <laughs> it, and that yeah. is, it has done its greatest work. I think it's, it's greatest damage, um, if you will. And so that was a pattern that I saw not only in my own story, but in the story of so many different women, as I've heard from women and talked with women over the years, this idea of, man, I can't even talk to God about this. Cause I'm sure he's just disgusted with me or he wants yeah. nothing to do with me, or, you know, I'm supposed to be the worship leader at my church and I, I'm just such a hypocrite and I know God has to be just, just fed mad up with me, you know, yeah. <laughs> God's just mad. He's just angry and he's fed up with me. He doesn't want anything to do with me. Why do I even bother? You know? And I realized like, if we could help women realize that that's not God's heart for them, like that's not the voice he has for them. Like that's the voice that shame has given him, <laughs> you know, yeah. if we could convince women that's not grace and that's not the heart of God for them in the midst of this struggle, then we, then we are giving them access to freedom. We're, we're bringing them back to a place where they can find freedom because you're not going to find it true freedom apart from Christ and apart from God and his love for you. And so um, some of the patterns of, of shame, and I talk about this in the book, um, there's a book called The Cry of the Soul, which talks about, it's written by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman. And it talks about different emotions that we experience. And one of them is shame. And it talks about the three signposts of shame. And the first one is an obsession with self. And that is this just, I am a failure. I'm a hypocrite. I'm disgusting. I, 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 I. And it's not selfish. Like it's not, you're not being selfish. You're just you might be a great and loving and kind person, or God might be amazing and loving and kind, but I am a filthy worm, you know? So there's no way that your goodness or God's grace can reach me because no one understands how bad I am. How no, one bad understands, I am. Right? Yeah. no one understands how horrible I am or how unlovable I am. And then the second is a flight from exposure. So it's, it's hiding. We see this in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? They take the fruit, 
and they realize we're naked, made a mistake. Whoops. You know, and they, mm-hmm. and they cover up from each other. So they put on the fig leaves to cover up from each other. And then they also hide from God. So they are, there is layers of hiding, if you will, mm-hmm. in an effort to protect what has just happened. And so if you have an area of shame in your life, you start to defend and protect that almost. You don't want that to be discovered. Right. You don't want people to know this about you. And in the book Quenched, I talk about this idea that if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't love me. Like if right. you understood this thing that I am hiding, you wouldn't love me. And then the third signpost that they point out is violence, which isn't like physical violence. Hopefully it's, it's just an emotional violence. It's this need to defend and lash out to protect whatever it is I'm trying to hide. And so you might find yourself cutting off relationships. You might find yourself being a little aggressive with people as they're trying to just get to know you. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen this in in working with people where you might like ask them a question and all of a sudden you get this really bizarrely overreactive answer. And you're kind of like, whoa, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we call it now triggered, right? Like, you're like, whoa, whoa, where did, where did that just come from? And that's, that's that defense. I don't want to talk about that because that's going to expose me. And so I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to lash out. I'm going to defend. And the reason I think it's so important for people to understand that this is shame is because by themselves, they kind of look like just normal defensive mechanisms. Like they look like yeah. they're healthy boundaries, you know, and, and I'm just protecting myself. I'm just, you know, whatever. But if you can realize, oh, actually I might be living a life that is marred by shame here. Like this is yeah. actually shame calling the shots. Then you're able to say like, where, what does grace want for this circumstance? Because shame wants isolation and wants you to run. And grace wants connection and wants you to come and to reconcile. And so if you find yourself like constantly cutting off relationships and lashing out at people, it might not be everybody else's problem, right? <laughs> like yeah. You might be dealing with an issue of shame. Okay. So just to recap there, you said what the, uh, what were the, what was the author's names that you just um, referenced? Dan Allender and Dan Tremper Allender. Longman. Yes. Okay. So they're saying um, a self-focus. And right, then an obsession with self, mm-hmm. obsession with self, and then a running or like a hiding isolation, yes. and then turning to violence or a form of aggression or just kind of right. like a lashing out. That's powerful to see that pattern. So, if we see those things in our life, to ask what's really going on, what's the mm-hmm. un, like, what am I actually trying to hide here? With you saying mentioning them, I remembered I underlined a quote in your book. Um, from them that I thought was really powerful. Can I just read it? Sure. Um, brokenness is the antidote to shame. The power of shame is never crushed by affirming our goodness or dignity. Instead, it is melted in sorrow when we are overwhelmed by what it exposes in our hearts. Yeah. Any approach to shame that does not deepen our need for repentant sorrow will lead to the self-absorbed focus on ourselves rather than greater confidence in grace. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. I really like that because I think sometimes in our current culture, we try to antidote shame with this statement, there's nothing wrong with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And I get that like to the core, it's like, yeah, we are all actually made in the image of God. And there's so much about you that the, the enemy and culture is trying to distort and say like, everything's, 
everything's wrong with you. Um, and so then we're trying to push that off and say, no, nothing's wrong with you. But there are rea- there is a reality that there are times in our life where it's like things we do and things that are coming out of us is actually wrong. And we yeah. should <laughs> actually feel convicted and be like, I need to change. Like, otherwise mm-hmm. you're kind of like narcissistic and like kind of, I mean, for women, we're kind of like acting like a goddess, like every, I'm perfect. Everyone bow at my feet. And so I really like that. The, that the true antidote to shame is turning towards grace and, mm-hmm. but it does have to do, it does have to do with hope. Like there's a hope for me that if I expose myself and take this risk in leaning into connection, there is hope that I could be free. And that's why I yeah. just so appreciate your vulnerability because I, I know that it makes it possible for other people to be vulnerable. And I know that, you know, um, one of the reasons we're called the union is because we're trying to highlight that it's not just one person, but this is a union of voices, people saying, I did deal with this, or I have experienced brokenness or addiction, um, but there is a way out and Jesus is worth it, you know? Um, okay. I'm just trying to think the next question I'd love to ask you in your book, you wrote, um, freedom for many of us means we want to be free to choose whatever we want without feeling guilty. Uh, but you also mentioned that that's kind of like, uh, it can lead to women attempting to outweigh their guilt with good works. Uh, but that's really just like looking the other way in a prison cell. Mm -hmm. Can you, Uh, I don't know if you went through that in your own story, you know, as you maybe started to try to get free, um, or if you just are seeing that in other women's, in other women's stories, but can you kind of talk about that, how we can be driven to try to outweigh, um, we feel trapped in our addiction in porn addiction or masturbation. So it's like, well, I, I don't think I can actually be free. So instead I'm going to kind of compensate over here. What, what do you, what do you see there? So I, I tell people it's, it's an unfortunate dynamic kind of in the church, um, with how we talk about women that is, is changing thankfully, but, um, kind of a holdover from the purity culture movement. You kind of have, you have this, um, what do I want to say? Like a, a spectrum of women, right? You've got like your, your Proverbs five harlot and like your Proverbs 31 wife. And I think women who struggle with this, like feel like behind closed doors, I am that horrible, wicked harlot that everybody is like being told to watch out for. I'm a homewrecker, you know, and that's what they feel like because we don't have like, we don't have the narrative that says like, Hey, you actually can be the worship leader of our church and still struggle with something like the worship leader is not perfect. The pastor is not perfect. The pastor's wife's not perfect. You know, we don't, we don't have that narrative kind of, we have like these pedestals that we've put people on. I think especially women, like my husband's a chaplain, so he's a pastor. So I'm a pastor's wife. So I understand this dynamic of being lifted to this higher level of like, you're the example for everybody and you have to have your life put together. But man, like I don't have my life all put together, right? Like I need grace in Jesus just as much as the next person. So um, you have these women who struggle with sexual sin, who struggle with things like pornography, who think, I am so far from what the Christian ideal of a woman is, you know, and, and so what do they do? Well, in that shame and in that flight from exposure and in that, I don't want anyone to know this about me. We over 
compensated. People have asked me, what does a woman who look, who struggles with pornography look like? Like she looks like your pastor's wife. Like she, she doesn't look like anything, you know, like she's mm-hmm. not, it's not the one who comes in dressed immodestly, you know, that everyone would say, Oh, it's definitely her. Like right. <laughs> it can be, it can be your pastor. It can be your worship leader. It can be your youth group leader. Like mm-hmm. it does not have to be this, you know, sinister picture of this horrible, immodest woman. Like that's not what we're looking at here. And so I think what happens is Christian women who struggle with this, just kind of in an effort to not be found out, make sure that they look as Proverbs 31, quote unquote, as possible. And I joked that in my struggle, if there was a Proverbs 32 woman, like I was trying to be her, like I was active in my church. I was leading in different things. I was helping with vacation Bible school. I was winning talent competitions. Like you would not have looked at me and thought she's someone who struggles with this. And so I think we see that. I see that with, with women who have this struggle, this just need to kind of make sure. And it's, it's a hiding thing. It's, it's, I want to lead you. So it's a decoy, right? It's like, I wow. want to lead you so far in the other direction that you would, even if I got caught, you would think there's no way this is her. Mm-hmm. Like, but then at the same time, I'm living in shame going, you're not going to love me if you realize this is me. So I'm kind of self, I'm defeating myself yeah. in a way because I am building myself up with this false presentation of who I am, the filtered version of who I would love to be when I'm actually free. Like this is, I would love to be this person, but I'm not her, but I'm pretending to be her. And then I'm taking it out on you. And I'm mad at you and calling you a shameful, horrible person when you realize I'm not her. Right. And so it's this, it's just the self-fulfilling prophecy and this very defeating cycle that we can, that we can fall into. Um, On the flip side of that, you have people who want freedom that just looks like kind of what you were saying earlier, just affirm me in the place that I'm at, right? Like I, yes, I struggle with this and there's nothing wrong with it, you know? And so they kind of buy all into that mm-hmm. lie of, you know, this is who I am. This is why would God make me this way? You know, and God didn't make you that way. Like mm-hmm. he, he made you in his image. He made you with desires and drives and they have been warped. Like, you're not necessarily warped and twisted, but like your desires and how you're acting out on them is warped and twisted. And so how do you correct that? But women either kind of go to one of two extremes. They're either overperforming as a way of hiding, or they just go, leave me alone. Like this is, this is who I am. am. This is how I am. Mm -hmm. This is, this is it. And what is that? That's shame. Cause that, what does that do? It starts to cut off relationships that are too judgmental, right? It's me well, I left my church because they're just a bunch of cruddy old judgmental people. I don't want to talk to God because I know that he's just judging me. And so you start to isolate. And then the end of shame is basically you are isolated and alone. Wow. Affirming yourself, but but you have no relationships and no connection to community. You're alone with your struggle, telling yourself that you're a good person. You know, that's that's the end root of shame. Right. And if, so for women who maybe are feeling like they're vacillating, maybe even between the two or right. they've, or they've jumped full on, you know, into one of two of those paths, either, like you said, fully embracing, this is just how I am. This is going to be the rest of my life. I'm just going to have to deal with it. Or like, 
um, I'm going to try to hide this and I'm going to overcompensate with activity. Um, neither of them are actually fulfilled in what they're really made for, which would be to just like to really be in connection with people in mm. committed relationship, being known and valued for who they are as people. Um, oh man, I would feel like there's so many more directions we could take this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, what is some of the damage done from the pornographic influence itself? What mm-hmm. is, what are the messages from porn that are starting to impact young women with, you know, older women as well. But I'm just thinking of what you said before, both statistically, how the young women are really inundated by this. Yeah. What, what are they seeing? What are they, what's the value of a woman being, what's portrayed? So, I, I mean, porn is, and they'll, the people in, in it will tell you this, it's not a realistic depiction of sex to begin with. So when you have young minds who don't have, um, like a family structure that's having healthy conversations about sexuality. This is their sex ed. And it's not, it's not a healthy picture of human sexuality or or healthy relationships. So you have that, you have the level of violence that can be in hardcore pornography and teaching girls that this is that pain is acceptable, you know, that this is how they're, and they're supposed to react a certain way to like, they're, they're, using it as kind of a script for, oh, this is how I'm supposed to, yeah. I'm supposed to be okay with this kind of stuff. It's actually supposed, not only am I supposed to be okay with it, I'm supposed to actually feel good about While it. being abused. Seen, yeah. Right. And I've seen testimonials of girls who, you know, maybe watch pornography with their boyfriends, right? And then they, they go and they sleep together and the boyfriend does whatever has happened in, in the film that they just watched. And it's painful to her. And she reacts in pain and it just confuses both of them because it's like, well, what's wrong with us that this didn't work out the way it was supposed to? (laughs) And not realizing that the porn industry itself is full of people who are drugged up and who are turning to alcohol or who are numbing themselves with medication, scenes that are cut and recast, you know, crying back scenes, like behind the scenes, like it's just not what it's presented to be. It's, it's fake. Mm Mm-hmm. But they are coming at it as, well, of course it's real, you know, and this is, this is the script for us. And so it's teaching unhealthy expectations for sex. And um, I think it affects a a young woman's self-image, but we also have a generation of women talking about Gen Z that's being taught that they have to exploit themselves, right? Like they are, they're being taught kind of they're in competition with these porn stars. And if you want to keep your boyfriend and don't want him looking at porn, then you need to send him videos and stuff of yourself, or you need to let him do this stuff to you. And they're being like put in contest with this. And they believe that this is acceptable. Like when I, back when I saw porn, I thought, well, you know, every like women, of course women do this. Like, why wouldn't they? And then I didn't realize until later that, oh, not every woman does this, but they're, they're in that same place of like, well, doesn't every girl send her boyfriend nudes? Like, isn't this a normal thing? And it's like, it's not, it's not. And I can say from personal experience as someone who sent those kinds of images when I was 17 years old to a complete stranger online, Mm -hmm. mind you, that something happens to you when you become pornography. It's one of the only struggles that you can actually become. So I can consume pornography and I can also become 
it for somebody else. And when a person becomes a commodity and becomes a thing that someone else enjoys, you, you lose part of yourself kind of like you lose that connection. It was meant to be a part of this. Like that person didn't know me that I sent these images to, but now he has to this day, if he chooses to, he still has access to my 17 year old body. Wow. And these younger girls aren't understanding the, the ramifications of that because this is the world that they're growing up in where this is just, this is what women do. You send pictures of yourself, you know, you like this, you deal with that. Like guys can beat you up and you're supposed to enjoy it, you know? And that's not, that's not healthy sex at all. As that's so, I mean, the way you just described that is sound, it's so painful, so dehumanizing. And I just hate that that's become the normal atmosphere for young women. You know, I think, you know, we have sons, but I think of, you know, nieces or some of my like family friends and their daughters. And it's like the spark in their eye, the sparkle in their eye, the joy on their face, the delight in like, I've watched them grow up. And I think if ever someone, you know, it's like, if they ever believed that they had to be reduced to a commodity, like you said, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking for me. And I think how much more, even for the heart of God, who he delights in his daughters, And he's like, no, like, don't, don't believe that. Don't give yourself to that. And I think uh, we've seen a lot of the time it has to do with women, like not wanting to be alone or Mm -hmm. wanting to be affirmed, wanting to have someone, like you said, like, if you don't do this, like your boyfriend's going to dump you, he's going to choose someone else over you. And so it's not even like they're doing something they want, maybe a part of them wants, but it's, it's like this big ploy to kind of distort their own identity and Mm. where they lose their, they lose their innocence and they lose, I mean, the sparkle in their eye, like they, yeah, they become, become something else. Um, okay. I know we have to close up our conversation. (laughs) I feel like if, you know, maybe there's a woman, okay, maybe it could be two different women. There could be women who (laughs) are currently dealing with porn addiction. They want out. They don't know how. Or women who did deal with it and they're finding it is affecting, maybe they're married now or they're, or they're dating somebody or they're engaged, but that those lies of shame are still there Mm -hmm. because they've never actually, maybe the addiction's done, but they've never actually um, been real about what they Mm -hmm. faced or maybe the pictures that they sent or, you know, kind of who I used to be. What would you say? Let's start with the person who's currently currently in it. That's funny. I actually feel like the answer is very similar for both. And okay. So, awesome. Um, I think I would say you need to talk to somebody, and I I know that that's like so scary, and it's not meant to be shameful. I think we have, unfortunately, like in the church, I think especially like made confession kind of like this this horrible thing, you know, that we have to do like where we turn ourselves in for our crimes and, you know, get our, our sentences and our punishment. And Mm. so we have this kind of true crime attitude toward confession of I've done something wrong and now I'm turning myself into the church authorities who are going to be, who are going to punish me. But the Bible talks about confessing our faults to each other so that we can find healing. (laughs) Like it's, it's, um, it's meant to be 
an opportunity for us to experience grace. Like it's meant to bring us back into community. We are combating shame when we don't listen to it because it's telling us like, you can't go talk to those people. They're going to judge you. Like no one can know this about you. You need to hide. And when we say, I'm not going to listen to you and whether or not they receive this, well, I refuse to live in hiding. I'm going to share this. I'm going to talk about how this is a struggle for me because I know that God has grace for me. People can be wrong. Like People can, can be shocked. They can be disappointed. They can have a, a wide range of emotions, but I know at the end of the day, God has grace for me in this struggle. And so I'm not, I refuse to live in hiding and I refuse to live in shame. And even if they go, who we don't want to like deal with you, they know, right. And I'm not hiding. And so that's how we combat shame and begin to open up the door for grace. And so whether this is a current struggle that you have that you're like, I feel so stuck and I don't know how to get out. Share your story with somebody, like tell somebody and they might, it doesn't have to be a counselor. Like my husband's in school for counseling. So like I'm, I'm a supporter of counselors, but like, it doesn't have to be one of those. Um, but just somebody, somebody who knows you, who is in your community and you can say like, this is me wanting to be real with you. This is a struggle that I have. And I know you might not understand it. I know that we might have to walk through this together. If you're a wife and telling your husband, we might have to walk through this together and we might have to get somebody to help us figure this out. But I can't live in hiding anymore. I refuse to live in hiding. And when you're talking about a, a marriage relationship, even you're you're fighting for intimacy at that point because shame and intimacy can't coexist. And so when you are hiding this from your husband, even if it's a past issue, you're going to have shame always whispering in your ear. If he really knew, yeah. he wouldn't still be with you. If he really knew. He wouldn't still love you. You're a fake. You're a fraud, you know, and you're going to constantly have that until you're willing to say, our connection and our intimacy is worth this to me. I'm going to fight for it wow. and sit down with him and say, I need you to know that this is part of my story. And I understand if that hurts. I understand if that's hard. I understand if we need to go and see somebody and talk about this more, or if you need to go and talk to somebody about this, like I'm giving you that space, but I cannot continue to hide because it's, it's killing me. Like I'm, I'm withering away inside. And so I really would encourage either of those women, your first step is to tell somebody. And I think you'd be surprised at how the chains start to fall off then, even without all the cool little apps on your phone that you can put on and the little support groups you can be a part of, even without all of that, you will find that those chains start to fall off as you pursue community and connection and grace with other people. Beautiful. So beautiful. Can we take a moment and can, can I just pray for Mm -hmm. those who are listening and let's, um, yeah, I just want to pray that women will just feel the grace to have the courage to, even right now, after the podcast is over, they just send a text message, you know, to someone, Hey, I need to grab a coffee with you. I need to talk Mm -hmm. to you about something. Um, thank you, Jessica. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you for taking the, the time to write this book. I really believe that it, um, quenched is going to 
just be a lifeline for some women who need it. So we'll make sure to include in our show notes, just the way people can find you and get this book. Uh, but yeah, just want to honor you for your, the, the hard work you've done to bring this message, this needed message. So yeah, let's, let's pray. Father, we come together today as, um, as beggars, daughters who aren't beggars anymore, Father, but you have brought us into your kingdom and we are now, uh, yeah, we've called, we've called you savior and Lord and father, and you've happily adopted us. And Father, together, uh, Jessica and I are just praying, Lord, for those who are listening, that, yeah, if they are in the midst of struggle, in the midst of an addiction where lust and shame are just kind of just creating this vicious storm inside their soul, Father, we pray that right now shame would shut its mouth, Lord, and that the women would would have courage and grace to stand up and say, I'm not going to hide anymore. And we thank you, Lord, that you love to bring freedom to the captives, to those who are in prison because of their own decisions or those who are um, captive because of other people's decisions that have hurt them. Lord, you love to bring true freedom to women. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Union Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at theunionmovement.com. For more information, please visit our website, theunionmovement.com, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Union Movement.